Hello and welcome everybody. This is Pavel and you're listening to 100 Conferences podcast with 3TS. I'm here as usually with Yasmina from 3TS and today our guest is Del Huxford from Square Pattern Box. Thank you both for being here. Space is yours now, Yasmina. Thank you very much, Pavel, and welcome everyone to this episode of the O100 Conferences 3TS podcast. I am Yasmina Heniova, Communications and Investment Manager at 3TS Capital Partners, and I'm moderating this podcast episode. Today, I am joined by our guest, Dale Huxford. Hi, Dale. Hi, how are you? Good. How about you? I am fabulous. Fabulous. Love that. Yeah, uh, Dale is an attorney advising both companies and funds during transactions. And we met, I think it was a year ago, right? During this- it was. It was It was almost exactly a year ago, I think, in, uh, in Bratislava, right? Exactly. I think it was in November last year. And uh, actually what struck me then, how positive Dale was, like there's just this energy and fun bubble around him. And I think you can feel it even through the podcast. And so we started talking back then, and I'm so happy that we could record a podcast today. Thank you so much for being here, Dale. Oh, my, my pleasure. I'm glad we could do this. Okay, so to start it off, could you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your career, maybe? I, sure. I can, I can talk about myself all day. You know that. I, I, I think I'm the most fascinating person in the world. Uh, no, I, uh, so I am a lawyer. Uh, and my specialty is working with with early stage fast technology companies and investors who invest in early stage fast growth technology companies. Um, and sort of my sort of a little bit of my unique positioning in that in that sort of sector is that I I've spent you know I've been a lawyer for almost 17 years now, and I've split almost exactly half of that in Silicon Valley and half of that in the rest of the world. I was based in London for, for many years. And so I, I have a genuinely global, um, you know, venture practice. Uh, my clients come from all over the world. So they, so I have, I have, or have had clients based in Portugal, Spain, UK, France, uh, Germany, Austria, uh, Slovakia, Czech Republic, Ukraine, uh, Hungary, And then, and then a lot of Latin America as well, um, Mexico, Colombia, Peru, Chile. So it's, you know, I, I see a, a wide variety of, of, you know, types of companies at a wide variety of stages uh, using a, a wide variety of sort of mechanisms for investment. Um, so it's, you know, my, my practice is not the typical lawyer practice where you just print out a bunch of forms and fill in a bunch of blanks and, and then charge your clients a ridiculous amount. Um, I, I still charge my clients a ridiculous amount, by the way, but I actually have to do work for them. So there you go. Good. Thanks a lot. Uh, actually, talking about uh, where have you been based in the past, I think earlier this year, you put it in a way that there's one ap- apocalyptic event after another happening. So <laughs> where did you escape to? Can you all tell us? <laughs> so... Uh, so I was in San Francisco. I was my my home office is in San Francisco and has been for the last two two and a half years. And in uh, in it was about it was about late April. We had you know we as as a community as a San Francisco community and and in largely in the world had had been you know we'd been locked down by coronavirus limitations and restrictions on on movement and 
and what was available and what was not um, for about what six weeks at that point. And uh, and I you know I'm no expert. I'm certainly not an epidemiologist, but but I do know human nature, and I do know how things tend to move in terms of trends. And I, I looked at this and, and kind of said, you know, it's going to move like a pendulum for the next year. You know, we're, we're going to have uh, the number of cases and hospitalizations is going to level out. We're going to relax the restrictions and then the cases are going to spike again. And then we're going to, you know, have more restrictions and it's just going to go back and forth. And since I didn't want to deal with that sort of back and forth whiplash for the next you know, indefinite period of time, I picked up my entire office and practice and moved to Mexico, the southern remote area of, of Mexico in a town called Puerto Escondido. So, uh, so I've been here since, since May. Very nice. I think a lot of us can envy you that. Uh, <laughs> we might touch upon this again at the end of the podcast, but now let's uh, jump into it. Um, I wanted to ask you, what was actually the most interesting transaction that you've ever worked on? Most interesting transaction? So you know, transactions tend to be pretty, you know, you, you have sort of some, some building blocks for transactions. Um, and, and you tend to use the same ones, regardless of, of the, the, you know, type of transaction. The, the fun part, it comes in, in the client, um, what they do, who they are. Um, there are, there's, I've done some, some nutty ones. Um, some of my favorites, let's see, I, I negotiated a deal on behalf of one of my clients to march in the opening ceremonies of the Olympics in Rio, Brazil, and to, uh, and, and to stay at the Olympic village and, and be a part of the Olympic festivities. Uh, that was a fun one. I, I had a, a client company that was formed by four former, former or current uh, NHL hockey players, professional hockey players. And, and, and by the way, the one, the one big takeaway from that experience is if you are a aspiring you know, founder of a company and you're looking for a co-founder, don't look for anybody who's played professional hockey. It's a bad idea. Those guys have taken way too many hits to the head over the years. Um, but, uh, but that was, that was a fun company because, uh, actually I'll, I'll tell you the story. There were four of the co-founders. One of those co-founders wrote himself a $25,000 check from the company's account and ran away to the Dominican Republic with the wife of one of his other co-founders. Uh, and so they were, uh, they were trying to figure out how to kick him out of the, the company. Um, and, and unfortunately, their operating agreement, which I did not draft, by the way, did not allow him to get kicked out of the company unless he had, quote unquote, unanimous consent of all members. In other words, he had to agree to kick himself out of the company. And so I'm going through all the the options. I'm going through all the alternatives that the company might have. Well, we might be able to, you know, try this. And after each one of them, one of the guys, I, I get, I can't name names, but, but he's a very large enforcer in, in professional hockey. Like he, he's, people know him. He, he gets in tons of fights. And, and after every, uh, after every suggestion I would have, there would be a long pause. And he would say, I say, we just go kick his ass. And, and I, you know, at the end of the day, not the worst solution in the world. You know, it's, it's fast, it's effective. It keeps it out of court. You can move on with your lives. So uh, anyway, those, those are kind of some fun ones. Nice. Uh, all sports related. Huh? <laughs> yeah, good. So maybe I, I wanted to know from you, what do you currently see happening in terms of funding rounds and transactions going on? Yeah, now? yeah these, are these are exciting times, man. 
I will tell you what I am seeing. And, and I will preface this by saying, you know, there's always a bit of a danger of taking your own pulse and then assuming that your, you know, your own little bubble must be the way that the rest of the world is, is operating as well. So, you know, this is my own little slice. And I also have, you know, access to, to some data that actually supports this and, and some, you know, um, I have, I have data from, you know, the last three months, the last trailing six months of, of venture deals, et cetera, you know, around the globe. Um, so, you know, I've, it supports it. Um, I am seeing, so, so when, when coronavirus sort of first happened, uh, some of the deals I had that were, you know, three quarters of the way through, uh, they all closed. But for the next about six or eight weeks, nobody started anything new. You know, if you were, if you were in early negotiations, if you were at term sheet stage, something like that, everything sort of got put on pause. And, and then about, by, by about the end of May, people sort of shrugged their shoulders and went, well, I, I guess this is the new normal. And we've got to get used to it and we'll proceed on with our lives. And for the last about three months, I have been very busy in my practice. Um, I have seen a lot of um, both financing transactions and, uh, and sell-side M&A transactions. The M&A market right now is hot because you know, acquirers are taking advantage of you know, deflated prices. So I'm seeing a lot of, of each of those. The other part to that equation is, is, well, are you seeing good deals or are you seeing bad deals? Um, good and, and good and bad meaning, you know, the, the terms of, of the deal are, are, am I seeing high valuations? Am I seeing low valuations? To, for that, at the very early stage, you know, first round of funding, uh, I'm seeing valuations stay pretty stable from what they were before. Um, where, I'm, where I'm seeing valuations go down is companies that raised money, you know, 18 to 24 months ago when the markets were super hot. And they probably raised money at too high a valuation. They were probably overheated a little bit in terms of valuation. And now they're, they've run out or, or they're running out of their, their cash reserves. They need to go back out to the market. And the market is saying, now nah, we need to correct that valuation. And I'm seeing a lot of down rounds. So, you know, at the sort of series C, series D stage of, of a company's life cycle, which is typically sort of the growth and scale phase of a company's life cycle. Uh, I'm seeing, I'm seeing a lot of down rounds at that stage. So, uh, and that's something we haven't seen since, uh, you know, really since 2009. And would you say that this is like pretty stable across regions because you obviously have your base globally, as you said before. So same in Europe and the U S for instance. Yeah. I'm seeing um, Europe is a little slower, um, a little more hesitant. Uh, The, the U S I'm seeing it's a little more active on the U.S. side, um, but that's not that's not unusual and it's not unexpected. You know, Europe Europe t- typically um, pokes its head at it takes a longer to poke its head out of its shell, and then is much faster to retreat its head back into the shell. And that's you know it's it's been like that for a long time. The you know the thing you have to remember is um, these you know all these funds. You know, they raised and closed their fund over the last four or five, six years when uh, just an, a ridiculous amount of money has been put into venture funds over the, over the last five, six, seven years. All of those funds still have money. You know, the, the coronavirus didn't impact the size of the funds that got, that got closed in the past. So, so money is still there. It's just being those who, who are deploying it, those who are spending it, those who are investing 
are just being a lot more opportunistic about taking advantage of some kind of some of the price breaks that they're getting now. Um, but there's, there's still a lot of business and there's still competition out there for deals. If you're, a, if you're an investor. Yeah, actually, it's a good point. I'd like to come back to one thing that you mentioned, that the funds that were already raised, they basically weren't impacted in terms of size. Have you seen any cases at all in the industry where LPs would back out and sort of the capital they've already committed, they wouldn't invest it anymore? Yeah, I've, I've seen that uh, a little bit, very, very seldom. Um, and, and I'm talking recently. Um, you know, there's there's sort of two types of, of funds out there. There are those funds that, you know, gather together money, have it available in an account, and, you know, they, they spend it from there. Um, but most funds go around and they gather commitment letters, you know, from, from their LPs. They go around and, and their LPs say, I will commit, you know, $10 million to your fund. And then every time that the fund wants to do an investment, they do a capital call to all their LPs saying, you know, of the 10 million that you committed to us, we need 1 million now in order to fund this investment or something like that. For, for LPs that have been particularly hard hit by, by coronavirus, you know, there, there is the possibility that they'll just come back and say, sorry, can't do it. I don't have the, I don't have the capital. Um, and, you know, I've seen that a couple of times. But, but also funds are sensitive to that, right? They don't want to force the LP into a bad situation. Um, so, you know, funds are, are usually willing to work with their LPs in, in situations like that in order to avoid a situation where they force their LPs to breach their, their commitment. Yeah, and when it comes to, you think, like new investments, do you think um, this will be actually impacted and it will be harder to raise funds in these times, like new funds? I would, I would think so, <laughs> except that, and, and I'm not, I'm not seeing nearly as many announcements of, you know, new, it seems like, you know, over the last few years, it seems like every day there's been an announcement of a new $300 million fund somewhere. Um, but, uh, you know, I haven't seen nearly that many announcements, but, you know, one of my, one of my longtime clients and, and a great fund based in Spain called CIA Ventures, they just announced the closing of, of their third fund, 85 million. Um, so, you know, good for them. And, uh, so if you can close in this environment, then kudos to you. That's great. Yeah. I've seen also some funds that have been actually announced that already have been raised sort of in the beginning of, of, of when Corona hit, but they haven't been announced yet. And they sort of paused this communications activities around it to yeah. wait yeah. until the press, uh, leaves the Corona topic a little bit behind because it was pretty overloaded with that. They, they sort of announced it later, but uh, it's difficult to say maybe how many funds really were fundraising actively throughout the yeah. current time and, and will be closing soon. But I think we yeah, will look that. Uh, coming back to, um, to the companies and investors relations, we said that we see more or less the same number of rounds, but maybe valuations could be impacted in some cases. And there's definitely at certain stages down round happenings as well. Uh, what would you say is this, those rounds, are they usually closed with the existing investors that the company already has? Or are there a lot of new investors coming in as well? You, you know, if you're talking about down rounds, um, down rounds are often closed with, with internal investors. Um, those, those who already exist. 
Um, and and it's, lar it's often done um, in conjunction with kind of a restructuring component to it. So in other words, um, instead of just building on to the prior documents where you have series A shares, series B shares, series C shares, um, oftentimes they'll, they'll make their investment in the company conditioned on some sort of restructuring so that they end up getting more than, than what they otherwise would have or, or the existing preferred shares are forced to either participate in the company or participate in the investment or their shares get converted into some sort of common or, or deferred share class. Um, that's, that's known as a pay to play provision. And those pay to play provisions are usually typically reserved for, for companies that are in tough, tough times. Um, so they, uh, so it's a way to sort of, if I own 15% of a company, um, and I'm willing to fund the company in a, in a tough environment like this, um, I, I want, I want my 15 cent, 15% 15 to, you know, somehow magically become worth 25% through some sort of restructuring, um, because I'm, because I'm putting in money when nobody else is willing to, there's a lot of that that goes on in in sort of later stage or down rounds in order to, in order to sort of incentivize, motivate people to, to put in money in, in what is otherwise a tough economic environment. Is this also a case for new investors coming in that there is a lot of like investor friendly terms? Yeah. You know, honestly, so I, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to show you how old I am right now. Uh, so when I first started working as a lawyer in the Silicon Valley, that was right at the end of the dot bomb apocalypse, right? Remember, we had great times in 1999, 19, you know, 2000. In 2001, everything blew up. And it took Silicon Valley about five, four years to, to really recover from that. Um, and during that, that was that 2002, 2003, 2004 period was when I started working as a lawyer. And so, you know, my first two years of practice, I did a lot of down rounds because that's just what was going on in the marketplace at the time. Um, and, uh, and I, I, I recommend to any lawyer that un unless you have done a number of down rounds, you really don't understand the investment documentation that you are drafting and sign and having your client sign. Because when everything's going well, you know, all the arrows are pointing up and to the right. Everybody's super happy nobody bothers to read any of the agreement agreements you know everybody's everybody's happy with everything it's when things go badly that people take out those dusty documents from their bottom drawer and start going through them page by page line by line trying to figure out like how they can get out of this what their rights are um that's you know it's it's when times are bad that you really learn how to do your job as a lawyer so um when i first started doing my job uh there were a lot of down rounds and um, there were a lot of very, very complicated, um, uh, very kind of clever, creative structures used at that time. Uh, you know, there was, there was full ratchet anti-dilution. There was, uh, again, pay-to-play provisions. There were, uh, there were all these things. Uh, basically, the venture community has just said, you know what, let's not try to be too clever and let's just stick with our standard set of terms. Uh, and so I really haven't seen a huge amount of, of changes to sort of what is quote unquote normal or what is quote unquote market um, in terms of the, the types of terms. 
Um, I think I think the venture industry learned from its mistakes in the early 2000s and realized that uh, that it doesn't there's there's no benefit to trying to be too clever in this business. You know, you try and invest in good companies, you try and grow those companies, and then you try and get a return on your investment from those good companies. And it's it's you know if you don't have those fundamentals in place, then all the clever terms in the world aren't going to do you any good. Yeah, right. And what would you say, for instance, for companies who right now don't really need to raise money, but still want to raise money to grow faster? Do you think they should yeah. still wait it out? Or is this an okay environment to fundraise? Because I've seen a lot of such companies who are cash positive, they can live uh, on their own revenues. However, they actually uh, would like to grow faster. So they're looking for an investment now while there's a lot of investors who are being cautious, sort of try to come in at a lower valuation. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it is possible that, you know, if you try to raise now, you're, gonna, you're going to get a lower valuation than you would have if you'd raised, you know, eight months ago or a year ago. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean the valuation is wrong, by the way. You know, you, your company is worth exactly what somebody, you know, what a, what a third party, you know, willing buyer says you're worth and, and no more and no less. So, you know, it, it could be that your company is being undervalued or it could mean that a year ago, your company was massively overvalued. Um, you know, there are two alternatives to that. So, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong if, if you're going out there. Um, the only other thing I will say, and, and you know, I, every company is, is unique. Every company is different. And so every company's situation is different. Um, but uh, I have listened to many, uh, many founders who, you know, many of my clients, many of my client founders who have sold, you know, a company and done really well. And I have listened to many of my founders who have, whose companies failed. Um, of those who failed, I have heard many of them say, I wish I had raised more money. I wish I had gotten more money out of, out of uh, you know, when, at this stage, I wish I had taken this deal. Of the companies that have done well, I have never heard a founder from those guys say, boy, I wish I wouldn't have taken that money early in the, the life cycle. You know, an extra, an extra half percent, an extra, you know, 2% of dilution due to, due to taking some extra money or taking it at a slightly lower valuation is, is not, you know, it's not the worst thing in the world. And if your company is wildly successful, it's not going to bother you very much. Yeah, that's definitely a good point. And still coming back to those valuations, you're basically saying since the companies might have been overvalued in the past, so the current valuation might actually be the right valuation. Do you think that valuations won't be growing again in the near future, even if the crisis sort of gets better? People have short memories. Uh, and, you know, it, whenever you think that there's a market correction, um, and, and, you know, the will the market will take a 20% value haircut and and by the way this doesn't only apply in the venture market this applies in real estate this applies in, in other markets you know the market will take a a haircut it, it it'll take a correction and then within six months people and, and everybody will say boy it's 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 a good thing because prices were way too high values were way too too rich and then six months later they've totally forgotten about that and values are actually keeping keep increasing 
you know, that's what's happened in the venture world over the last, you know, 10, 15 years. Um, every, every time somebody predicts, you know, a, a collapse, a, bu a bubble, um, you know, there's, there may be a small correction. And then six months later, everybody's forgotten about it and valuations are even higher than they were before. Um, so uh, it, it's, you know, there's, there's an old saying that economists have correctly predicted 10 out of the last two recessions. Uh, meaning like if you just keep predicting bad things, eventually you'll be right um, in, in that. But, but the flip side of that is that human beings have short memories and are pretty resilient. And, uh, and you know, a, a blip on the valuation screen is typically not for the long term. It typically only means short term. Yeah. And what else do you think will happen next? How do you see the future coming? Obviously, you don't have a crystal with you. No, I, I, you're mistaken. I do have a crystal ball. All right, of course. I've seen, I've, I've seen everything. I've seen it all. Um, no, I. Uh, um, as far as what, how I think things are going to evolve. Um, so a couple of things. You know, we're we're seeing in in certain sectors that are um, agnostic as to um, supply material. You know, they're they're not part. They're not reliant or dependent on the supply chain. Um, they've, they've weathered this storm really well. Um, I, you know, online remote learning, but everybody knows that. So I, I won't bother you on that. Um, one of the things that I would look for, and this happened, you know, remember I told you about, uh, the dot bomb, you know, when I first started, you know, out of that sort of apocalypse that happened in 2001, 2002, 2003, um, out of that sprang, the, the web 2.0 generation and you know web 2.0 is you know that's that's yelp and that's wikipedia and that's youtube and that's that's anything where people people captured the power of the community the knowledge of the community for the benefit of of the company um, and all of those companies sprang out of that sort of dot bomb apocalypse then you had 2009 you know the, the housing crisis and the recession there and um, out of that sprang a whole bunch of companies in the logistics space, in the uh, in the the mail order, you know, kind of mail order um, space. Uh, you had a whole bunch of companies that came out of that. And so, you know, if if that pattern continues out of this series of events, um, I would be looking for you know within a year and a half or two years some very, very good companies to spring out of this. Now, now, which companies are they and what are they going to be doing? If I knew that, I would put all my money in and go retire on a beach somewhere. So I can't tell you that. But, you know, that's what I would be looking for as far as trends. Well, where is your crystal ball now then? You <laughs> 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 could use it for. Good. Um, one more thing I wanted to ask you was about if a company or an investor needs a lawyer, how to really find and choose a good lawyer? Because I think we've heard so much in the industry how um, not helpful lawyers can be sometimes. Sure. Um, so how to make sure you actually get a good one besides sure. choosing working with you, but. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, and, and by the way, I mean, I, I will tell you, you know, I, it's a, you laugh, but you know, I'm not a great fit for everybody. You know, there are some, there are, there are some types of clients um, either based on their sector or their personality or whatever that I, I click very well with. 
and it's a good, it's a great match and it has been for my career. Um, and there are others that we just do not get along. We just, we just, we operate on sort of different biorhythms. You know, we have different sort of timetables. We have a different idea of what it means to be responsive and non-responsive. Um, and, and, you know, you got to kind of get in sync, you know, between client and lawyer. So um, am I the best choice for all, for all people in all companies? Absolutely not. Um, but, uh, but as far as going back to your, your initial question, you know, what, how do you choose a lawyer? I mean, first of all, you know, choose a lawyer to do what, right? Uh, there's, there's a million different kinds of lawyers with a million different sort of practice specialties. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in Europe, especially Central Eastern Europe, um, lawyers tend to be a little more generalist. They do, they do a number of things. Uh, in, you know, the UK and um, uh, the US, uh, we tend to be very, very specialized. Uh, so we have we have these massive firms, and and every lawyer within that firm uh, does one tiny little sliver of a of a practice niche or a sector. Um, so you know you've got to you've got to know ahead of time sort of what your what your need is. Um, but I'm going to speak about my sort of practice area, which is you know basically operating as outside general counsel for early stage technology focused companies. Um, if you if you're looking for somebody in, in to rep you know to work with as a startup, for example, um, and then I would look I would look at a couple of things. Um, number one, any any lawyer who's graduated from law school and is reasonably bright can read a contract. Um, any any lawyer and and any lawyer can mark up that contract. Uh, but one of the ways that I immediately when when I'm working on a deal. I can, I can spend about two minutes with a contract and immediately know whether that lawyer on the other side, whether my, you know, my opponent is sophisticated in this space or not, because the, the types of, you know, comments, the, the areas they, they tend to focus on um, are, um, if you're sophisticated and you've done this a lot, you know where the pain points are and you know where the points of negotiation are. And you know what the market is likely to bear, and those are the kinds of those are the kinds of uh, areas you tend to focus on when you mark up a document. Um, if if the lawyer is not very sophisticated, you'll get a document that just has red ink and markups everywhere, and you're like, this isn't very helpful. So you know somebody who actually knows the market, knows the 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 players, um, oftentimes. Uh, and this is probably bad. I should I shouldn't say this on your podcast, but I will anyway. Um, there, you know, lawyers are not supposed to have conflicts of interest, right? If I represent client A, and client A is doing a deal with with company B, I cannot also be representing company B. You know, certainly not in that transaction. But also, you know, maybe maybe company B wants me to work for them doing something you know totally different. Um, well, that's that's potentially a conflict of interest. And so there's a, there's a lot of concern by, by clients a lot about uh, whether, whether we might have conflicts of interest. And at one of my very first law, at the very first law firm I ever worked at out of law school, we used to, it was in Silicon Valley, we used to have a saying. Um, and that saying was, it, when somebody would ask us, is that a conflict of interest? We would answer, no conflict, no interest. <laughs> Meaning, Meaning, um, if your lawyer does not have a potential conflict of interest, 
there's a good possibility that your lawyer is not as tapped in to the industry and the sector and, and the players, the key players, as he or she probably needs to be. Um, so, so don't, you know, as a client, don't be scared off by a lawyer who may work with, you know, one of your, one of your possible competitors, um, something like that, that could actually be a good thing. You know, you can, you can use that lawyer's work on your competitor stuff to sort of, um, to streamline the work on your stuff because it's likely to be very similar. So there's some of that. And then I guess my last, my last point, I'll be very quick. Um, is if you want to get the best out of your lawyer, um, include your lawyer. Um, don't, don't just pick up the phone and only talk to your lawyer on, in case of emergency. Um, you know, give, give your lawyer some, some you know, a, a heads up. Um, talk to them about strategy. Have a dialogue. Don't just pick up the phone and bark orders. Uh, you know, I have done, I've worked with over 500 startup companies over the years. Um, I, you know, there's a pretty good chance that if you're thinking about doing something as a company, there's a pretty good chance that I might have some good advice on how to do that based on the knowledge that I've gleaned from my 500 plus other client companies. So, you know, instead of picking up the phone and barking orders at me, um, how about you pick up the phone and say, hey, I was thinking about doing this. What do you think about that? Um, and, and include me in the discussion and in the dialogue, and you're likely to get a lot better work out of me. Good tips, Dale. Thanks so much. Uh, we have no very quickly an out of time, actually. So I'm going to move on to the speed Q&A uh, at the end of the podcast. Uh, you should give just very quick, brief answers to those three. Sure. One is, what are the trends that make you most excited right now? The, the trend that makes me most excited is, um, is non-U.S. money going into U.S. companies. Um, there used to be, a, it used to be that U.S. money went into non-U.S. companies, but it didn't work the other way around. Um, I'm, I'm now seeing a lot of non-U.S. money going into U.S. companies, which I find exciting. The second one is, what do you do uh, to keep up with your mental health? So how do you take care of yourself? <laughs> they said, I, you know. I was going to say, I pack up and move to Mexico. That's what I do. Good. Uh, what resources would you recommend? It can be books, podcasts, videos, lectures, anything. Sure. I, I and this is not a, a new one or, or one that nobody knows about, but there's a story behind it, which is when I joined my first firm out of law school, you know, in, in other countries, you go to law school, you pass the bar, you spend about two years as a trainee or kind of an, an apprentice role at a, at a law firm. And then after the two years, you know, they make a decision of whether they hire you full-time or not. In the U.S., you show up at your law firm, at your employer your first day, they show you to your office and they go, okay, good luck. And, and you're supposed to somehow figure out how to do this job that you've never actually seen anybody do before. So I had no idea how to do my job. Uh, I didn't know what a venture financing was. I didn't know what a venture-backed company was. I didn't know anything. And, uh, and uh, one of my colleagues, he was a senior associate. He pointed me to this, to this, this blog written by this crazy guy in Colorado about, uh, about venture financing. He said, read this blog, print out every page of it, put it in a binder, put it in a notebook and use that as your Bible for the first you know, six months or a year. And that crazy guy in Colorado was Brad Feld, who's, who's you know, now he's, he's one of the partners at Foundry. 
VC. He's, he's very well known. He's now taken those blog entries and actually published a book based on it. Um, but, you know, I, I am a professional. I do this for a living. And I still go back and look at his advice from time to time. Um, so, you know, I, I highly recommend Brad Feld's book and his blog. Yeah, the book is called Venture Deals, and it is my Bible too. So That's it. Yep. Thank you. Uh, I'll quickly recap some of the main points we went through. One was that deals are still happening. People is busier than ever. Valuations might be pretty stable at early stage, but are definitely lower at later stage for companies that maybe have been financed uh, at very high valuations, maybe overly high in the past. Uh, second point on LPs, um, they're only very seldomly would back out of commitments they already committed. However, might be more hesitant in investing in new funds, and this might be a bit tougher for GPs to raise. Um, another point I marked here is that probably out of this crisis, we might actually see in a year and a half or two really good companies coming out of it. And those that will find those will obviously retire in the beach. And what they can do for their mental health is to pick up and go to Mexico. So maybe next time we see each other all in Mexico by the time we're recording the next podcast. Um, thank you very much, Dale, for being here. Uh, thanks everyone for listening as well. And if you like the podcast, leave us a review and subscribe. And we're looking forward to having you all at the next episode again. And until then, stay safe. Thank you very much. Thank you.